Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Good afternoon, and welcome to this Federalist Society virtual event. My name is Sam Fenler, and I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. Today, December 7th, 2022, we're excited to host Courthouse Steps Oral Argument, Moore v. Harper, featuring Andrew Grossman. Andrew is a partner at Baker and Hostetler, where he co-leads the firm's appellate and major motions team. He is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, and he is an executive committee member of the Federalist Society's Free Speech Practice Group. If you'd like to learn more about Andrew, you can find his full bio at our website, fedsoc.org. After Andrew delivers his opening remarks on today's oral argument, we will turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A function at the bottom of your Zoom window, and we'll do the best to answer as many questions as we can. Finally, I'll note that all expressions of opinion today are those of our expert, not the Federalist Society. With that, Andrew, thank you for joining us today, and the floor is yours. Thank you, Sam. And thank you also to the Federalist Society uh, for hosting this event. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk about uh, the court's business. Um, today, our topic is the argument uh, held this morning in Moore versus Harper. It went on for, gosh, nearly three hours. Um, and I think it provided a lot of clarity uh, for a case that has been one of the most high-profile cases of this term, uh, but also one of the most misunderstood. Um, my plan for today is to briefly discuss the case's background, um, go over some of the topics that were discussed uh, at argument today, uh, give a little bit of analysis, uh, perhaps uh, some thoughts on the way the court is looking at uh, the issues in this case, um, and then conclude with, gosh, uh, it's always brought to do it, uh, but uh, some predictions uh, as to which way uh, or ways the court might go. Um, beginning with the background of the case, the case concerns the power of a state legislature uh, when it is uh, exercising its authority under the federal constitution's elections clause. The elections clause gives a state legislature the power to prescribe the times, places, and manner uh, of holding uh, congressional elections. Um, what happened in this case um, was that the state legislature enacted a new congressional district map uh, in the, for North Carolina uh, following the 2020 census. Uh, plaintiffs brought suit uh, contending that the map was a partisan gerrymander uh, in violation of the state's constitution. And the North Carolina Supreme Court agreed. Um, and so the issue was presented um, do provisions of the state constitution constrain uh, the legislature's authority uh, when it is when it is prescribing regulations pursuant to the elections clause? Now, specifically, um, there were three provisions of the North Carolina constitution uh, that the North Carolina Supreme Court held uh, rendered the map, uh, or I guess, pro uh, prohibited partisan gerrymandering of certain types uh, and, and cited as its basis for striking down the legislature's map. One was a provision that all elections shall be free. The second um, was that the people shall have the right to assemble together to consult for their common good. And the third uh, was a provision uh, protecting the freedom of speech. Uh, the court also averted to another provision 
um, that is akin to the federal constitution's equal protection clause. Uh, from those provisions, the court derived a principle of political equality. Um, and from that, it uh, put forward the holding that a congressional map must not diminish or dilute on the basis of partisan affiliation. Um, in other words, political parties must have substantially equal opportunity to translate votes into seats. On that basis, it struck down the legislature's map. Um, as the court, as the case comes to the Supreme Court, um, the central issue is whether that ruling, um, that is the application of state constitutional provisions to the legislature's uh, map uh, in this instance, uh, contravenes the uh, Article One's elections clause. The petitioners in this case put forward two theories. Uh, the first, uh, which is broader, uh, is the view simply that because the elections clause specifically delegates this power to the legislature of each state, um, that a state cannot constrain the legislature's exercise of that power uh, through provisions of its constitution. In other words, when a legislature is acting pursuant to this grant of authority, it is not subject or limited by subject to or limited by provisions of the state constitution. Their fallback theory, which is somewhat narrower, um, is simply the point that drawing maps uh, and assessing claims of partisan gerrymandering inherently involve uh, questions of political judgment. And, and by deciding those types of questions for itself, particularly based on vague and open-ended provisions of a state constitution, the state Supreme Court effectively put itself uh, in the legislative role and uh, exercised legislative power as referred to by the elections clause. Um, as for the respondents, their view, uh, I think, is several fold. First, just that the term legislature has always been understood to encompass a legislature that is bound by ordinary uh, provisions uh, by, by that is ordinarily subject to judicial review, including judicial review for compliance with state law, including state constitutions. Um, their view also is based on history and the claim that uh, for many years, perhaps uh, as far back as the founding, uh, I, I, I suppose I should say it's the framing of the Constitution, uh, states have simply assumed that provisions of their constitutions uh, affect, uh, did apply uh, to state legislatures' uh, promulgation of regulations uh, pursuant to the Elections Clause. Um, they also argue that the Supreme Court's precedents endorse that view. Um, there's a lot more that could be said about the background of the case, but I think that's enough to set up the, the disagreement between the parties. Um, at today's argument, um, there were a number of topics that arose, and I think it's fair to start off by saying that the argument was somewhat inconclusive. Um, this wasn't a case where it is uh, apparent uh, exactly what it is the court is going to do or how it's going to uh, approach the questions presented by this case. Um, but I think we can identify several of the leading topics of discussion uh, that interested the justices and drove the argument. Um, the first um, is the question, what is the source of law here that's relevant to the question that the court is reviewing? In fact, that was Justice Thomas's very first question, and one that was repeated at various points uh, by different of the justices to uh, various of the advocates. Now, why is that a significant question? It's a significant question because uh, as the petitioners have framed the issue, um, the elections clause is a delegation of federal lawmaking authority 
uh, to state legislatures. And so it naturally follows that if we're talking about uh, some a, a, a source of law that is federal in nature, uh, it would not be preempted uh, by state constitutional provisions. Instead, it would be subject to federal constitutional law uh, only. Uh, as well as uh, subject to preemption by Congress uh, acting pursuant to its authority under the Elections Clause. So that's what makes this a significant question. And it's one that, as I said, uh, Justice Thomas uh, pressed, but it was also raised at various points by Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch as well. Um, a second topic uh, that was addressed in many questions um, relates to both relates to the text uh, as well as the history of the elections clause. Um, of course, as for the text, the fundamental dispute is what the word legislature means and whether and whether if that means narrowly a state's lawmaking apparatus, typically colloquially referred to as a legislature, whether that therefore implies uh, a limitation that that legislature is uh, not subject to substantive state constitutional provisions. Um, there were, of course, uh, the, each side, you know, has its favorite history to cite. Um, on the petitioner's side, um, they're happy to cite uh, statements by James Madison, uh, as well as uh, Justice Story's participation uh, in, in uh, Massachusetts uh, politics, as well as his uh, famous constitutional treatise. Um, on the respondent side, um, they put great weight on state constitutional provisions that regulated elections in various ways, and according to them, uh, also reached uh, federal elections subject to the elections clause. Um, they also put some weight um, on events that occurred in other states, um, some historical court decisions, as well as uh, several court decisions uh, dating as far back uh, as I believe the 1870s, um, in which state courts um, struck down uh, legislative uh, congressional uh, district maps. Um, I think it's fair to say that there was no consensus one way or the other uh, based uh, on, on the history of the application of the elections clause. Uh, it's certainly not an issue that the court has ever decided directly. And the historic and the different histo uh, historic materials do point in different directions. I will say, however, that I thought the respondents did score some points and seemed uh, to seem to illuminate uh, several of the justices uh, when they pointed out simply how many states uh, at this point in time uh, do have constitutional provisions that are being applied and have been applied in recent years uh, to regulate uh, elections within states, including uh, federal elections. Um, so I think that's something where the respondents, you know, did have a point, and the petitioner's response to that point uh, was simply that. Uh, this more recent practice is not probative of the original meaning of the elections clause. Uh, for that, you have to look back uh, further in history. Uh, and the history at that point uh, shows a paucity of decisions um, striking down uh, state legislative enactments uh, for violation uh, of state constitutional provisions. A third topic, and one that consumed uh, uh, one that one that was raised in a great many questions, uh, involved the various decisions cited by the respondents uh, as supporting their view, and indeed, as they said in some instances, basically deciding this case. Um, I identified four cases um, that were uh, really three cases, I guess I should say, um, that you know were raised repeatedly. Um, 
particularly by the respondents. Um, the leading one, of course, is the Supreme Court's decision in Smiley, um, where it held that a legislature's uh, exercise of its um, elections clause power uh, is subject to a gubernatorial veto uh, if a state constitution does prescribe that. The petitioner's response to this point is simply that that is a procedural rule and that the U.S. Constitution takes legislatures as it finds them. They're, of course, established uh, by state constitutions. And so the way uh, that a state legislature enacts law uh, is considered to be part of the legislature uh, for purposes of the elections clause. And so that would include a gubernatorial veto, which was, of course, well known uh, at the time of the framing um, and was, uh, according to several historical dictionaries, considered to be part of the legislature. Um, as I believe it was Justice Gorsuch pointed out, there is a reason, uh, for example, um, that the uh, president's veto power uh, is identified in Article One of the U.S. Constitution, um, which generally concerns uh, the legislature, as opposed to Article Two. Um, the second case um, was the court's um, recent, relatively recent decision uh, in Rucho versus Common Cause. Uh, that was the case where the court, in an opinion by the Chief Justice, uh, held that uh, partisan gerrymandering claims uh, simply are not justiciable uh, in federal courts as a matter uh, under federal law. And the court's basis for that decision um, is that questions of gerrymandering uh, really do involve, involve uh, inherently questions of political judgment. And they're simply not susceptible to judicial, judicially discoverable and manageable standards. Um, it's just not the kind of thing that a court can decide uh, while it is acting as a court in exercising judicial power. Um, the court did, however, in, in Rucho, leave open the possibility that these sorts of claims could be addressed by state constitutions and by state courts. Um, and so that, of course, is something that the respondents in this case have seized on as indicating that states do, in fact, have the power uh, to control state legislatures through constitutional amendments, including constitutional amendments that may prohibit gerrymandering. The third case um, cited in support of the respondent's position uh, was the Arizona State case uh, from several years ago. This was another case that involved the elections clause. And the question there was whether a referendum that created a nonpartisan redistricting commission uh, was an appropriate exercise uh, or was, I guess, consistent uh, with the elections clause or whether that was a usurpation of the state legislature's power under the elections clause. Um, surprisingly enough, the case was not uh, was not subject of deep discussion and oral argument, uh, despite being uh, a football uh, in the party's briefs. Um, of course, the respondents argue um, that by authorizing um, a referendum process, which is akin to the processes that, that are used uh, frequently to adopt state constitutional amendments, um, that Rucho, I'm sorry, that, that the Arizona state case very nearly decides this case. And indeed, Arizona does contain some broader language expressing the view that state legislatures are, at least in some instances, constrained by state constitutions. On the other hand, the petitioners point out that the substance of the power that the redistricting commission was exercising in that case uh, was actually not part of that case. 
What was really at issue was the propriety of the referendum itself, and the court's decision doesn't extend beyond that. Uh, whichever way the court looks at it, for whatever reason, the parties, uh, even including the respondents, did not place great emphasis on the Arizona state case. Um, the fourth case I'll mention, and this was uh, brought up more by the petitioners, um, was the court's Palm Beach County case. This was uh, a case that was a forerunner of Bush versus Gore. And in this decision, the Supreme Court vacated um, a decision of the Florida Supreme Court uh, for the re uh, for the reason that the Florida Supreme Court's for the reason that it was unclear to what extent the Florida Supreme Court was pre was premising its decision uh, on interpretation of state law versus the application of, of the provisions of the state constitution. Um, and that decision, uh, which is under the uh, electors clause, which is similar to the elections clause in assigning power to the legislature. Uh, of a state. Um, that decision did quote language from a case called McPherson versus Blacker um, that opined that it would be improper for a state to constrain a legislature's uh, exercise of authority uh, through constitutional provisions. And so the idea of Palm Beach is that uh, the court recognized the vitality of that principle and that limiting factor. Um, I think while Palm Beach was mentioned a number of times, there was, uh, particularly by the petitioner, there was some pushback, including by Justice Kavanaugh, that the decision simply doesn't extend that far, that it was largely a procedural decision, that it was unanimous and that its language and that its language and reasoning uh, are somewhat more ambiguous and somewhat lacking. Um, the next topic I'll mention um, was a strange new respect uh, for Chief Justice Rehnquist's concurrence in Bush versus Gore. Um, in Bush versus Gore, um, there was an argument, the court ultimately decided the case um, on equal protection grounds. Um, but Chief Justice Rehnquist uh, wrote uh, a famous concurrence in which he uh, pre pressed a, an alternative ground of decision. And that was simply that the state Supreme Court, the Florida Supreme Court, had significantly departed from the legislative scheme for appointing presidential elections. And on that basis, uh, its decision violated uh, the electors clause, which, as I noted, assigns power to the legislature. Um, surprisingly, um, all three of the advocates arguing against the state legislature in this case all seem to endure, endorse uh, various versions of uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist's uh, reasoning uh, in his Bush versus Gore concurrence. In other words, they acknowledge that there are limits to what state courts can do when they are adjudicating laws uh, enacted uh, pursuant to the elections clause, and that that does present a question of federal law. Um, we'll get back to that, but I think it is interesting that it was only several years ago um, that that concurrence uh, was being described regularly in the legal uh, legal pa uh, um, academic papers, uh, as well as in uh, the media, um, as being radical and aggressive um, but it seemed to, uh, in this case, uh, be universally accepted as a correct statement of the law. Finally, uh, many of the court's questions involved line draw involved issues regarding line drawing. In other words, whichever rule the court addresses, um, there are potential difficulties in terms of how it would define that rule and how subsequent courts uh, would actually apply that rule going forward in deciding cases under the elections clause. Um, for the petitioner's theory, um, the petitioner acknowledges 
that uh, that state legislatures can be constrained uh, by state constitutions procedural provisions. In other words, uh, for example, uh, a presentment clause that requires uh, a piece of legislation to be presented to the governor, who then may sign it or veto it. Um, but the but the petitioners distinguish between those types of procedural provisions and substantive restrictions. For example, uh, limitations on gerrymandering or a substantive limitation that voting has to be conducted in a particular way. Their view is that those types of state constitutional provisions cannot constrain a state legislature uh, acting under the elections clause. Um, Justice Sotomayor in, in particular um, was forceful in pointing out that courts have for many years had have, have had difficulty in distinguishing uh, between substantive and procedural rules when you're talking about uh, federal regulations uh, and review under the Administrative Procedure Act. And, and likewise, have had difficulty in distinguishing between um, substantive uh, and procedural uh, rules of decision uh, and rules that, and laws that apply in court uh, when you're talking about the Federal Rules Enabling Act and to what extent different uh, provisions of state law are applicable in federal court or not. Um, and I think a number of questions recognize that that was uh, that this may present a difficulty uh, for the petitioner's central theory. Um, of course, the petitioner's response was that this is the type of distinction that courts uh, draw all the time. Um, and that uh, in this instance, the mine run of provisions are pre pretty clearly fall on one, one side of the line or the other. In other words, as a practical matter, it really isn't that hard. Um, the second concerned the argument that was pressed, uh, particularly by respondents, um, that the proper standard is when a state really gets, and I'm just going to say, all, a state court gets off the reservation. And there were any different number of ways that the different uh the, the Respondents' Council, as well as the Solicitor General, uh, any number of different ways that they expressed uh, this particular standard. But the idea is that when a state court departs too far from a state law and from a state constitution, um, what is the right standard there? Is it, as Chief Justice Rehnquist said, a significant departure from state law? Is that the right way of uh, formulating the standard? Or is that not to use the phrase that was batted around a, a, a fair amount, sky high enough? In other words, is it not defer sufficiently deferential? Um, and if that is the right approach generally, uh, putting aside how exactly you define the standard, does the same standard apply uh, when you're talking about state laws versus state constitutional provisions. Uh, one respondent's counsel um, said, yes, there is a distinction and the courts ought to be more deferential uh, to state constitutions. Um, the other respondent's counsel said, no, he didn't perceive a, distance, a difference between the two. Um, so that is a question uh, if the court, where that line lies and whether there's one line or two lines, um, but that's a question the court would have to address uh, if it does go down that road. Um, a, a final line drawing question uh, concerned the respondent's position uh, for their interpretation of, the, of the, the force of the word legislature. They've argued in their briefs that there's that even under their view, there must be a central role for the legislature. And as the petitioners pointed out, um, that's a very vague way of putting it. What does that mean? How is that adjudicated? What's the rule of decision? Um, as, as petitioner's counsel put it, um, the, the respondents appear to adopt a sort of functional test. In other words, look at what 
look at what is actually being done. But of course, functional tests of that sort are notoriously difficult to apply uh, in, in practice. Um, for that reason, the petitioner argues that they're more formalistic test uh, regarding substantive versus uh, procedural constitutional limitations is a much easier one to apply. Um, but I think the point stands that whichever way the court goes, uh, however it interprets the elections clause, uh, there may be some line drawing questions and the court may may be at, may be forced uh, to try to put pen to paper and flesh out a workable standard. So I'd like to give a few points of analysis, um, sort of my takeaways from the decision. And the one I'm going to start with doesn't really go to the merits of the case, but I think it really does drive a lot of the public interest in this case. And this is the dog that didn't bark. For months and months and months, we've been hearing a parade of horribles uh, that would uh, we've been hearing stories about a parade of horribles that would follow if the court were to rule for the legislature in this case. Uh, for example, that the legislature could steal an election uh, after election day and take the votes away from the voters. Um, that uh, that state legislatures could uh, wholesale disenfranchise uh, groups of voters, engage in invidious voting discrimination. Uh, that somehow our whole democracy uh, would be placed at risk. Um, I think it's significant that of the three advocates who argued uh, against the state legislature's position in this case, not one made any of those claims. Um, there was no claim that a decision for the state legislature would allow the stealing of elections. There was no claim that it would result in disenfranchisement. Uh, and there was no claim that it would somehow override the broad protections of voting law, uh, of uh, the broad protections of federal law uh, that generally serve to present, prevent disenfranchisement uh, and that ensure equal voting rights for all Americans. Um, so much of the public reporting on this case um, has really been over the top uh, and filled with um, really a, a lot of very strong invective. I don't want to argue, and I, I don't believe that this is not an important case. Uh, it is an important case because it asks the question of whether uh, election uh, federal election rules will be decided by uh, democratically elected legislatures versus, uh, in some cases, uh, state courts uh, wielding open-ended and vague provisions of state law. And that is a very important question. But as to whether our democracy hangs in the balance and legislatures might steal elections, that simply isn't what this case is about. And I think anybody uh, listening to today's oral argument would recognize that those simply aren't the stakes by the people who actually, uh, according to the people who actually know what this case is about. Um, second, what do the justices think of the legislature's primary theory? In other words, this categorical rule that a state legislature can never be constrained uh, by substantive provisions of a state constitution. Well, I think we know where probably five, uh, at least five of the justices stand on this. Um, I, I've made maybe even, maybe even six, let's say. Um, uh, among the commonly identified as liberal justices, I think it's very clear that uh, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Jackson um, simply reject uh, every argument that the petitioners pressed in this case, um, and that their view is that the primary theory is simply wrong. Justice Kagan did seem to, re did, did seem to reject the primary theory of the petitioners, but she did seem a little bit more open in her questioning um, to narrower ways of looking at the case, and we'll get to that. On the other side, uh, Justices Alito and Gorsuch were very full-throated uh, in their view um, 
that the petitioner's view of the elections clause is basically correct as a textual matter and as a pragmatic matter in terms of how it would play out and how it would work and how it's been understood through history. And I think the same can be inferred by Justice Thomas's questioning as well, particularly his repeated questions on the source of the law uh, underlying the question in this case. Justice is, uh, the Chief Justice, as well as uh, Justice uh, Kavanaugh and Barrett, uh, seemed a, a little bit less clear about what they thought about this theory, and it did ask it did ask questions of the advocates on both sides. I think there still is a pathway by which the petitioner in this case does prevail on their primary broader theory, and it really relates to a question that Justice Gorsuch asked of uh, one of the respondents' uh, counsel. Um, the question was, if you concede. Uh, as the respondents council did, uh, as did the solicitor general, that state law, that state court decisions are reviewable uh, to see if a state court went too far in some way um, in uh, in applying and adjudicating um, or striking down, as the case may be, um, a state uh, law regulating uh, federal elections. Um, where does that come from? In other words, what is the source of that limit? Because if you're talking only about state law, well, then there are only state law questions and that and the federal courts do not answer generally state law questions. Uh, and certainly the Supreme Court would not be answering state law questions in this context. Um, if it comes from the word legislature uh, in the elections clause, if that is the limit, um, then that's then doesn't that seem to give away the whole case? Because if the limit is that legislature means legislature, and therefore there is something to review to see if the uh, state courts went too far away from what the legislature did um, or acted in a way that's inconsistent with the legislature, well, that concedes an awful lot, and it would seem to at least implicate the central theory of the petitioners in this case. And so it may be that the logic of Justice Gorsuch's question on this point in other words, if you're willing to accept any limitation, isn't that the whole ballgame? It may be that as the court ponders these issues and works out the implications of the various arguments that were put forward, that it recognizes that that concession um, is enough for the court to decide the case. Um, third, I think there was, however, uh, even more interest, perhaps, in a narrower uh, a narrower approach to the uh, approach to deciding the case, uh, including the fallback theory that was put forward by petitioners. Um, I think it, it's fair to say that the Chief Justice, Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Barrett all asked many questions about narrower approaches to deciding this case. Um, and they all seem to be searching for some way of deciding this without necessarily having to embrace, in this case, the categorical rule that was that was uh, put forward by petitioners. And so they asked a lot about Chief Justice Rehnquist's concurrence in Bush versus Gore and how that might apply, how the principles from that concurrence might apply under the different theories, um, as well as uh, some of the outer reaches of what state courts might do uh, in in ruling on uh, election clause legislation and how it is that federal courts might deal with that. Um, they all seem to be grasping for some type of narrower approach, and it's possible that the approach that they settle on uh, may be some version of the fallback theory uh, that the petitioners put forward, their backup argument. Um, and I'll get to that a little bit. I'll flesh that out a little bit more in a moment uh, when I turn to really my final analytical point. 
which is, as I mentioned, there was this strange new respect for Chief Justice Rehnquist's Bush versus Gore concurrence. In fact, I think there may have been more discussion and more questions on that concurrence than any other topic in this case. And to this observer, at least, that came as somewhat of a surprise. Um, the reason that was a surprise is that the petitioner in this case does not raise uh, a, a, an argument um, that the state Supreme Court significantly departed from state law in, deci in, deciding, uh, the, in deciding this case. Um, in other words, the, the petitioners here raise their categorical argument, they raise their fallback argument, but they don't raise an argument that the, Nor that the North Carolina Supreme Court got North Carolina law wrong so egregiously um, that it was a significant departure from state law uh, and thereby implicates federal uh, interest in federal law uh, in the way described in Chief Justice Rehnquist's concurrence. Um, that said, there are other ways that the concurrent, that, that, that Chief Rehnquist's logic uh, may factor into this case. And I think, I think it's worth teasing those out. The first, and it's very simple, is just the idea that, yes, this case and, and the state laws that are at issue, the state redistricting plan, uh, does present a federal question. So that's very basic. And to be honest, I think the questions of the justices went far beyond that. A second way of looking at it is simply as an alternative limitation. In other words, if there has to be some kind of limitation, the one that Chief Justice Rehnquist put forward is one that it's, is one that by all appearances, all the parties could live with. Now, of course, the petitioners would like additional limitations. Um, and, but everybody on both sides did endorse in some fashion the rule that Chief Justice Rehnquist put forward in his concurrence. And potentially that could be something for the court to gesture towards uh, if it were to rule against the petitioners in this case. In other words, the court could say that this is the proper limit, um, but it isn't implicated by this case because the petitioners didn't raise this kind of argument. Now, third, and I think this is perhaps the most likely, is that looked at it from a certain angle, Chief Justice Rehnquist's logic uh, does provide support for the petitioner's fallback argument. Let me explain how. Um, Chief Justice Rehnquist identified the legislature as the central actor in making elections regulations. And he rejected the view that a state court could usurp that role uh, through reinterpretation of state law uh, or through other machinations. Now, if you take that, you can combine that principle with Rucho, which recognized that questions of partisan gerrymandering uh, involve inherently political judgments of the sort that aren't intrinsically judicial. In other words, it, 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 it's, leg, it's legislating, even if it's something that's be, that a, someone is asking a court to do. But, and that's particularly so when you're talking about vague and open-ended provisions of a constitution that don't provide judicially discoverable and manageable standards for the court to arrive at a rule and then tell the court how to apply that rule to a given congressional map. In other words, what is the rule of decision? Uh, instead, a court has to decide how much representation is right, how to measure that, how that should be balanced against other considerations, and so forth. And so if you combine the logic of Chief Justice Rehnquist's concurrence with the logic of Rucho, what you get is a, a rule that suggests that in a case like this one, um, a, a state court has gone too far um, if it relies on vague and uncertain constitutional provisions um, to override a legislature or, or, to, or, or, or to devise its own map or its own standards uh, for partisan gerrymandering um, 
because to do so is to affect is to essentially exercise legislative power. And maybe the rule would be different when you're talking about specific state constitutional provisions that provide a rule of decision. Maybe the maybe the rule would be different if the state itself had proposed a rule, if, if state law itself had proposed a rule of decision. But in a case like this one, where a state Supreme Court is discovering the standards um, from vague provisions of a state constitution, it simply is taking for itself the role of the legislature in a way that contravenes Chief Rehnquist's view of the electors clause, and by extension, the elections clause, uh, as well as Rucho's understanding of what it means for a, what it, what it, what it, what it, what renders an act sort of inherently political and legislative in its nature. So some guesses, uh, I, I'll, I'll conclude uh, with some prognostication about the different ways the, ca- the court might decide the case. And of course, I want to start by saying um, predictions are hard, uh, particularly uh, predictions about the future. Um, and in this case, particularly, it's very difficult, I think, to uh, have a firm view of what the court could do, because there were really so many different avenues uh, that were discussed both in the briefs uh, as well as at oral argument. I think there is, as I said, still a pathway open uh, for the petitioner's primary argument. Uh, That said, there is perhaps a greater likelihood that the court may seize on the petitioner's fallback argument. And if it does so, it could even leave that broader argument, the categorical approach. It may leave that for a later case in a later day, because if the court decides this on narrower grounds, then, of course, it wouldn't need to decide uh, the broader issue of whether um, state legislatures uh, are categorically free of state constitutional provisions when they're exercising their power uh, pursuant to the elections clause. Um, A curveball, and it has less to do with this court than with another one, is that the North Carolina Supreme Court, you know, may well reconsider this decision in the time that it's being, uh, that that it is uh, being taken under advisement by the U.S. Supreme Court. New justices have recently been elected to the North Carolina Supreme Court. Uh, as I understand it, and I'm no expert on North Carolina Supreme Courts, the balance on that court has shifted. And there is certainly a possibility that as a result, uh, recent decisions uh, of the North Carolina Supreme Court under its uh, outgoing majority uh, may be called into question, uh, potentially even in the near future. Um, if that happens, uh, it is certainly possible that the U.S. Supreme Court may not even wind up deciding uh, more, uh, more versus Harper. Um, so with that, uh, I will conclude, um, and I certainly look forward to your questions. Andrew, thank you very much for all of those remarks. It's very helpful. So we will now turn to audience questions. I will mention once more that if you have a question, please, you can enter it into the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. And Andrew, for the first question, I want to start where you started, which was that back and forth uh, with Justice Thomas, um, in which he noted that his court does not generally review state Supreme Court's interpretations of their own state's constitution. And to that, the petitioner noted that the decision violated the election clause of the federal constitution. And for their part, the respondents noted that they think a, and you said this as well, a sky high standard is the the correct way to address this. I'm wondering if you can speak more about that back and forth and how it might uh, factor into the ultimate conclusion. Well, I I think you put your finger on a really important issue. You know, for years, 
uh, advocates who take the position opposed to the, the state legislature in this case, um, you know, have argued that this sort of uh, argue that this sort of claim doesn't present any type of federal question whatsoever. And so it's not something that federal courts should even be reviewing. And of course, the respondents in this case um, took the opposite view. They did recognize that there was appropriately presented a federal question. And it was for the reason, I think, that was elucidated uh, by Justice Thomas's question that the font of the power that is being exercised in this case is the U.S. Constitution, the Elections Clause of Article One, And that's very significant because it's possible that some of the justices may look at this in a very simple but not simplistic way that the power that's being exercised here is, is inherently federal. It derives from the federal constitution. And because it is a federal power that's being assigned by the federal constitution, it would be a very strange thing to say that it is somehow preempted, that it is somehow limited in cabin by provisions of state constitutional law. Um, that's really not the way things that normally work. And so I think for a justice like Justice Thomas, uh, and probably Justice Gorsuch as well, it's enough simply to observe that what we're talking about here is a species of federal law. Um, and it, therefore, the very fact that the court has the power to hear this case, the very fact that all the parties agree on that and agree that there is some standard that applies in this field uh, is almost enough to decide the case. Certainly, I think the, the federalism issues that are raised will be very interesting to see how the court works through. And turning to our audience now, Andrew, our uh, guest, Marissa Cohen, asks, listening to the oral argument, which justices do you think were most open to the petitioner's position? And I know you touched on this, uh, but maybe you can expound upon uh, some of those justices that are up in the air and how you think um, this case might get to five votes. Sure. Um, so I don't think there was any serious question that uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice uh, Alito um, were very much uh, in the state legislature's corner uh, in this case. Uh, both of them asked uh, repeated hypotheticals of respondents' counsel that were drawn uh, directly uh, from the petitioner's briefing, uh, as well as from amicus briefing on the petitioner's side. Um, and they really seemed to be concerned uh, about the consequences of a decision that goes the other way. And so they seem to fully embrace uh, the petitioner's uh, primary argument. Justice Thomas also asked questions that, again, you know, regard the source of law that's at issue here. And, and, and to some extent, the federal state structure, albeit in an oblique way, but I think also suggests that he sees things similarly. Um, you certainly then have in the middle, the Chief Justice, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett, who on the one hand were perhaps a little bit skeptical of the state's broadest theory and particularly some of the consequences and difficulties um, that may be borne out uh, if that theory is adopted. Uh, but at the same time, they were troubled, I think, by what the North Carolina Supreme Court did here and by the idea that there wouldn't be some limitation, some justiciable limitation uh, on state courts uh, authority in this area. Um, and so they did seem to have some sympathy uh, for the petitioner's view that, you know, even if you disagree with the broader point, the narrower fallback argument about what the court did in this case, uh, and, and that's something that would really apply mostly in redistricting cases, that it was improper and that there has to be, and that there have to be some ascertainable limits here that really do have some bite. 
And I think a lot of their questions were devoted to trying to flesh that out and think through how a decision might reach that end. So potentially, you know, if you count that up, that's six votes, albeit on different grounds. Um, and it's certainly possible that the court could go either way or that there could be a split majority decision. But I think, you know, at this point, the petitioner's overall uh, position, in, in other words, uh, their, their hope that the uh, decision below uh, will be reversed or vacated, uh, is really still in the mix. And Andrew, you talked a bit about that uh, primary theory, the independent state legislature theory. And we have a couple questions from our audience today, and we've also heard a lot about it. Um, you've mentioned uh, a bit about it, as I, as I said, but I'm wondering if you could perhaps expound upon what that theory might actually look like in practice. And, you know, if in practice, uh, this theory would would be terrible if it would be fine or, or what you might think about that. Sure. So it, in practice, um, the theory, the you know, petitioner's main theory in this case is basically what prevails almost all of the time nowadays. And so in that respect, uh, it wouldn't be uh, you know really any much of a difference from what we're used to in terms of um, electoral rules and regulating uh, federal elections. Uh, let me start by saying, I, I dislike the term independent state legislature theory because I don't think it's very accurate. I think it misleads more than it informs um, because it's common ground you know, between all the parties in this case. And frankly, uh, I think anybody who's really discussed this issue that state legislatures are subject uh, the laws that they enact pursuant to the elections clause are subject to judicial review. Um, really, the question and the difference between the parties is what body of law applies uh, when when the when their enactments are subject to review. Is it state and federal law, or is it only federal law? Um, the petitioners, of course, say the latter. The, the respondents say the former. But that really is the debate. But I don't think anybody's arguing that. Uh, state legislatures uh, are independent in any way that is abnormal uh, or unusual. Um, in terms of how things play out, the, the greatest difference if, if respondents' primary theory uh, is adopted, I would simply be that in some cases where states have assumed that constitutional provisions uh, regulating different for you know different aspects of elections uh, apply to federal elections, um, those provisions uh, would no longer apply. Um, that sort of issue isn't really going to be raised until somebody sues over it or until there's some, excuse me, some type of dispute. Courts, of course, have all kinds of equitable powers and there are limitations on equitable relief that are regularly applied in election law lawsuits, particularly shortly before and shortly after elections, uh, to make sure that everybody has a fair opportunity to vote under the same rules so that everybody knows, you know, properly how the election is being uh, conducted and how, you know, to, to make sure that there's certainty on the ground. Um, so as a practical matter, you know, there might be, uh, you know, at the, if, if the court issued a decision for the state legislatures on their main theory, there might be at the outset some uncertainty in a few states as to whether certain provisions are applicable or not. And, you know, presumably that's something that a legislature could fix uh, in short order. But even if it didn't, um, you know, we're talking about a little bit of disruption. And I, I think it's notable, and this will be the last thing I would say, is that that really was the only, you know, for all the parade of horribles we've heard about this case, that was really the only thing that the Respondents' Council brought up 
uh, at argument was simply that there might be some uncertainty following a decision, and that, that might lead to some litigation to determine what laws properly apply in a given instance. So, you know, for all the uh, fear mongering and rhetoric that we've heard in recent months, um, you know, that seems to be by anybody's measure uh, about the worst that could possibly be expected. I think that's certainly helpful. And as you mentioned, you know, as far as the parade of horribles are concerned, we did hear about that in the oral argument. I do want to shift gears, though, now, because something else that appeared quite a bit is the question of constitutional interpretation of reliance on history and textualism. And we have a question from one of our audience members who asks, was there much discussion on how the word legislature should be defined in the elections clause? So there was some discussion. Some of it comes from the ratification and some of it comes uh, from the ratifying conventions and debates around that. And some of it comes um, from uh, state uh, legislative type debates uh, in the years following uh, the framing of the Constitution. Um, there isn't a lot of evidence on it. Uh, but what little there is that I have seen generally does support um, the sort of commonsensical view that legislature means what we all colloquially know it to mean. It means legislature. And in some instances, in some definitions at the time, it might be expanded to include the legislative process. Um, so as a matter of original meaning, um, you know, that's that seems to be the evidence that we have out there. Uh, there is some evidence uh, regarding the drafting history uh, of the elections clause um, it, it, with the idea, as petitioners put it, that it was um, that the original version of the elections clause was drawn by something from something called the Pinckney plan and then was subsequently revised to replace the word state, which had originally been used with the word legislature. Um, and so that provides an additional reason to accord meaning to the word legislature, because that's what was used in place of state. And if state, if the word that had been used was state, then, you know, the issue that's present in this case, um, you know, would be very easy to decide because a state can do whatever it wants and there aren't any limits on that. Uh, in other words, it wouldn't be assigning this power specifically to a particular organ of the state. I, I would be remiss, however, uh, if I did not note that the evidence regarding the picking plan uh, is contested. Um, some people uh, aver that it is a fraud or a forgery. Um, there seems to be a very vivid and, and frankly fascinating historical debate uh, over the provenance uh, of that evidence um, and who drafted what, when, and, and what was in the original picking plan versus uh, a, a sort of reconstituted draft that was prepared uh, many years later. Uh, it's a fascinating debate. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, you know, when you're looking at original meaning, uh, you know, there are, you know, there were dictionary definitions. And, you know, as the chief justice forcefully argued uh, in his dissent in the Arizona state legislature case, um, legislature was not a word of uncommon meaning. And so if the court looks at this as, as a matter of original meaning, um, you know, that could be a fairly straightforward way to look at it. Um, but, you know, obviously the respondent's view is, well, Nobody's treated it that way. And you can infer from that that it wasn't understood in that fashion in that fashion at the time. So I think it's fair to say that the meaning maybe cuts one way, um, but the understanding arguably cuts the other. Although I will say that that is a very heavily contested claim, given that there simply weren't many disputes over this precise point in the early years. And the couple that there were generally did seem to go uh, in favor of petitioners reading. 
And to stick with this uh, conversation about originalism, at one point, the respondents actually made a direct plea to Justice Thomas saying that this case lends itself particularly well to Justice Thomas's jurisprudence. And by that, the respondent meant uh, historical analysis analysis in particular. And and you, you sort of got into it, but moving away from the textual analysis and maybe to the historical analysis, I'm wondering if there's anything you wanted to say there about how that might factor in. Well, so that was Neil Cattell, I believe. And that was, uh, I thought, a, you know, a really neat uh, pivot that he pulled off just as a matter of lawyerly uh, craft, um, because he knows uh, that Justice Thomas uh, generally does allow um, advocates to speak, and that when Justice Thomas asks a question at the beginning of the argument, that the other justices will generally allow some leeway for the advocate to speak for a while and answer the question. So I thought it was very clever. Uh, to use Justice Thomas's question as an opportunity to hit several points. So far as the history that was discussed, you know, it primarily consists of state uh, of, of provisions in state uh, constitutions around and shortly after the period of the framing. And I, I think the historical evidence there is is just it's very contested, and I'm not really sure that either side uh, scores a, a clean win on that. Um, a lot of the provisions at issue um, did regulate elections, um, but they did so without specifying whether or not um, they that that included federal elections. And it's not apparent for many years that anybody really recognized the force of the elections clause. In other words, that somebody that anybody said, well, this provision can't apply in this instance uh, because we're talking about a federal election. Um, and so what you what you wind up with are some general clauses that you know were enacted to regulate elections generally. Um, and may have been applied in some cases to federal elections, but it's not really clear what they meant or what what light they shed on the original understanding uh, of the elections clause, and in particular, the use of the word legislature uh, in that clause. So, there, and there is one state constitution that actually is a little bit more explicit. I, I should say, very explicit that it that its provision do, did reach. Uh, federal, federal elections. So that is, again, another piece of evidence in their favor. But I think that was the one constitution that was actually clear cut uh, in favor of respondents' historical understanding, whereas so much of the uh, so much of the other evidence uh, that's out there concerning historical practice is really just equivocal. Um, I'll just give one example. Um, the first time this issue really came to the fore was during the Civil War, uh, because a number of states had constitutional provisions that required ballots to be cast in person in the state. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, for many states, um, there were many soldiers uh, who were uh, out, out of their states because they were deployed in the war. Um, so a number of state legislatures enacted laws permitting those uh, soldiers to vote uh, by absentee ballot. And the different states went different ways uh, in terms of how they assessed the conflict between those statutes and the state constitutions. Um, some states held that, that the state constitutions controlled. Um, and in those instances, the soldiers were not allowed to vote uh, in elections during the Civil War, including in federal elections. Um, whereas other states like New Hampshire and Vermont uh, held exactly the opposite. Um, that uh, under the elections clause, uh, the legislature had primacy over contrary provisions of a state constitution, and that therefore uh, the soldiers could vote via absentee ballot. 
Um, so that was really the first time this battle was joined in a way where there was a, a clear recognition of the problem and a clear resolution to that, albeit <laughs> the resolution went different ways in different states. But I think that only underscores how much of the history here is contested. Andrew, so we are pushing up on our on our time limit here, but I, I do want to pose one final question from our audience. And the question is, is there any chance of or perhaps a room for a decision that a state constitutional provision that limits the legislature's authority is binding, but not judicially enforceable? Well, to be honest, I, I'm not really sure how that would work. Um, and I think as a practical matter, uh, if the idea that it's morally binding uh, on the legislature, but not legally binding in a way that could be enforced, uh, you know, ultimately that would wind up, I think, being pretty similar to what uh, petitioners are asking for. Um, you know, I'm not sure that they have a strong view on the moral question uh, as to whether legislatures, you know, ought to as a matter of comedy or, or ethics or morality or what have you. Uh, follow the provisions of state constitutions. Uh, if it was simply not enforceable, you know, you'd have to ask, well, what's the reason for that? And presumably it would be an interpretation of the elections clause that matches pretty well with what petitioners are asking for in this case. Certainly. So, Andrew, in our, in our final minutes here, I, I want to ask if you have anything left that you'd like to leave our audience with today. Uh, you know, I think I, I think the thing I would leave with is just, you know, as I, as I said at the outset, this has probably been the most misunderstood case of this term. And it's really too bad because it's a fascinating case. Uh, it's, it's a case of first impression involving an important um, clause of the Constitution. Um, and so really does provide uh, a good road test. Uh, for original public meeting uh, and originalist interpretation. Uh, there are some really fascinating textual, uh, traditional, and historical arguments in the case. Um, and, and it ha does have very important consequences um, because it, you know, the question ultimately is who decides what the rules for federal elections are going to be? And that is, of course, an important question. I think it is very unfortunate that there has been so much misleading rhetoric and, and controversy ginned up uh, over the stakes of this case, uh, and the false notion that you know our very democracy uh, is somehow at risk, depending on how the court uh, decides the case. I think anybody who listens uh, to the recording of the argument today, and I hope I've conveyed this adequately, would understand that as high as the stakes may be, uh, that is simply not on the table, and nobody, nobody uh, argued that it was. Um, I don't think it does anyone a service. Uh, when there's so much misrepresentation about the court's business. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I would be pleased if I did my small role in helping to elucidate uh, what really is going on before the court, what the stakes actually are, and why it matters. Excellent. Well, Andrew, on behalf of the Federalist Society, I do want to thank you for sharing your time and your expertise with us today. I want to thank also the audience for joining us. We greatly appreciate your participation. Please check out our website, fedsoc.org, or follow us on all major social media platforms at FedSoc to stay up to date with announcements and upcoming webinars. Thank you all once more and have a great evening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.